Good morning, my name is Andres, and uh, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I serve as pastor of adult ministry here at Christ the King, and it's um, always a pleasure to get to share with you God's word. So we'll jump right in. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. It can be found on page 979 in your black Bibles, if you have those around you. If not, you can pull out an app, Ephesians chapter 6. It'll also be behind me here on the screens. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. So hear God's word to you this morning. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for giving us your word, which continues to speak to us many millennia after it was written. I do pray your spirit's presence in our lives, um, working out the implications of this passage into our lives and into our families. We need your strength. We need your power to carry these duties and commands out. We dare not do it alone. So we ask an extra measure of grace as we continue to lead our families into what it means to follow you and extend your mission in the world. Pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So, um, <clears throat> last couple of months, we've been uh, in this series going through the, Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians. And we took a break the last couple of weeks, but we're back in it. And we're now in chapter 6 of the letter to the Ephesians. And if you were here, you know, back when we started early, I think it was last semester, uh, we started with Paul kind of just describing how it is that God has been at work in the world and in the church, creating this community centered around Jesus. But then a couple of weeks ago, we started looking at this shift that happens in Paul's letter where he transitions from, you know, kind of this lofty theological language about God's eternal purposes and salvation and, you know, big themes like election, predestination, salvation by grace through faith, into some more practical implications of that. So what does that have to do with my marriage? And what does that have to do with my kids? And what does that have to do with my work? And so that's kind of what we're in the middle of right now is what, do all, what does all of this um, doctrine and theology, as Jaime was saying, what does that have to do with like my life, my day-to-day? What does that have to do with my neighborhood and my job and my school and then, of course, life in the home? Now, this specific section then that we're focusing on, Paul begins to, it's in the middle of this section that commentators have called the household codes. In other words, what does it mean for a family to be centered around Jesus. What does that look like? Um, What exactly are the implications of that? What do they sound like? What does that look like? What does that feel like? So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at marriage. Clay preached on that. If you missed it, you can go to ChristTheKing.com and hear it on the podcast. Uh, And this week, we're looking at this section where he zooms in and focuses on the type of relationships 
the type of parent-child relationships that the gospel produces. What is a, a family that's been transformed by the gospel that is trying to center their lives around Jesus? What exactly does that look like? So I, you know, <clears throat> I preached uh, this sermon at the 9 o'clock service. And so, you know... Um, the text talks about children obeying parents and then fathers not provoking their children to anger. I will say, men, you might want to protect your sides because you're probably going to get a lot of this uh, going on. Uh, there were a couple of bruises going out last sermon, so uh, let's dive in then. Um, Paul begins by giving a command to the children. He then moves into giving the command to parents, specifically fathers, and then we'll look at some of the implications of that for our own lives. So it's a pretty easy outline. We'll start first with the command that Paul gives to the children. So Paul begins by addressing children. One of the more fascinating aspects of this simple fact is that it's easy to assume and rush over this, especially if you've been in church a long time. You've probably heard these texts several times. You've probably read over them in your Bible reading. And that is, as I mentioned, after Paul writing this majestic, beautiful treatise on what it means um, that God has saved us from before the foundation of the world and the implications of that, he now says, hey, kids, Listen up. Children have always been included in God's covenant. From the beginning, God has included children as part of his people and provided special protection over them. Way back with Noah and his children being rescued in the ark to Abraham his children being called and protected through circumcision uh, to the Mosaic law, uh, taking special provision and care for children, calling them to obedience, all the way, uh, as I quoted in, in the baptism, to Peter, right, with this famous message, which he ends, the first sermon in recorded history, the book of Acts, where he ends by saying, this promise is for you and for your children, it's for your household. They're included. So if you're a believer, right, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, God makes your children certain promises to deliver them from sin through Christ's blood on the cross and through the Holy Spirit producing that faith. Now notice, too, something interesting here, another fact that's easy to overlook, is that as Paul's writing this letter to this network, if you can picture kind of the, the Middle East or the Mediterranean uh, world and environment, this would have been the, the, in what is modern-day Turkey. There was a network of um, house churches or small faith communities that had begun to be birthed in the Roman Empire, right, early on in the Christian movement. And Paul's writing them letters based on feedback that he's getting from these early Christian communities. And what's fascinating is that Paul assumes that children would be present in worship. Paul assumes that as this reader is reading the letter that Paul just wrote, he's assuming that there would be children around the tables and around the chairs that are in the pews to use modern language. Now, this is vitally important, and it's why we actually encourage you to have your children present in worship. 
they might not understand everything that is happening, but let's be honest, which one of us does? God has something to say to your kids too. He is at work even now by the Spirit, some mysterious way, stirring up their faith so that as they grow, eventually the fire will spark in their lives and true transformation will happen. They'll turn to Jesus. So of course then, we find Paul here addressing children and this is what he tells them. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, Paul grounds this command to obey your parents in two places. First, he grounds this in this certain um, structure that he sees God has wisely placed into the very fabric of the universe. Second, he grounds it in one of the Ten Commandments, specifically the Fifth Commandment. So first, Paul says, obey your parents for this is right. What does Paul mean by that? Obey your parents because it's right. Well, I think Paul is referring to an order that God has placed in the universe for how relationships are supposed to function when they are at their most healthy, when they are at their most wholesome. You actually get that. I mean, this is why these kind of relationships are addressed all throughout the book of Proverbs, for example. Obey your parents simply because it's the right thing to do. Your mother birthed you. Your father raised you, imperfect though they may have been, and which one of us doesn't have daddy issues? Your mom carried you, your father provided for you. Now I know that I'm generalizing here a bit, right? Much like Paul is in his letter. I know that for several of you, this hasn't been the case. You didn't get to experience this kind of relationship growing up, but for others it has. And so that's the principle. Obey because it's the right thing to do. Second, however, Paul grounds his command in one of the Ten Commandments, specifically the Fifth Commandment. Now, why does Paul quote the Fifth Commandment here? Well, it's certainly not because we are under the law. He's not saying, obey your parents or else. Obey your parents or else, right? That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's already made that clear up to this point that Christ has set us free from both the curse and the bondage of the law. However, once we are saved and trust in Jesus, the law, including the Ten Commandments, serve as a guide, as a resource to light our path and to guide our way so that to honor our parents actually becomes a joy to obey. Now, what happens as a result of this obedience? Once children obey their parents, what does Paul says happens? Well, a Christian child can expect a double blessing. Things will go well for you, and you will live a long life. In other words, if you live life a certain way, obeying your parents, honoring them, submitting to them, caring for them, you can expect things to go well for you. Generally, this isn't a hard and fast rule. 
right? We know that things often go wrong for even the most righteous of people. That's why we have the book of Job and Ecclesiastes in our Bible. The point is not that if your child is obedient, they'll live forever. The point is that God has organized the world in a certain way that if and when followed leads to more wholesome, healthy, blessed life. So that's the first command. Obey your parents. Second, the command to fathers. Paul continues by then also addressing parents. But more specifically, dads. Now a quick history lesson for you here. Many of you know this. But the environment and the society into which the early Christian movement and its churches were birthed, they came into being, was a Greco-Roman society which was extremely patriarchal. Men held most, if not all, of the power over pretty much everything. And this, of course, was reflected in the home as men or fathers had supreme authority over the family. This included not only the wife and the children, but also the grandchildren and the slaves. Now this authority, this power, was one way, and it was unchangeable, right, unbreakable. Now the way that this would work out in practice is that when a baby was born, into a Roman family, for example, it was brought out and laid before the father. And if the father picked it up, it meant that he was accepting it into the family, into the household. But he could also have the option to reject and deny the child. And so that child would be sold, would be given away, or simply left out on the street to die. Now, we don't know how often this actually happened, but the point is that this was legal in that day, in that society. So it's with that background, with that happening all throughout culture, you know, Greco-Roman society, that Paul writes this letter, and he begins this section by saying this, Fathers, ah, those in the congregation who were dads would have had their ears perked. And said, oh, now it's our turn. What is Paul going to say to us? Maybe to act like men and take control. Or maybe to demand obedience, right? After all, that's what men do. Well, something unexpected happens, actually. Paul begins, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, other translations say, don't exasperate them. Don't frustrate them. But wait, they're children, right? They're supposed to obey and do as they're told. And if they get frustrated, well, who who wouldn't? That's just a sign of their indwelling sin, right? Well, sure, Paul has just finished telling children to obey mom and dad. But he's also telling parents, don't use your authority, don't abuse your authority to discourage your children. Now, why do I translate it that way? 
Well, because Paul will later go on to write his letter to the Colossians. And there he tells them, fathers, don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. See, the opposite of provoking your children to anger is to encourage them. And how were they supposed to do that? Well, the text continues. Don't provoke them to anger, but instead, here's the solution. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now that phrase, to bring them up, Paul actually uses it in the previous chapter, Ephesians chapter 5. But there, it's translated as nourish. You familiar with that term? We don't use it as often anymore. But to nourish, and if you have gardens or pets, what does it mean to nourish? It means to feed, to provide for a need, to supply, to provide. The Christian father is to nourish his children. Now we know we're supposed to obviously nourish our children, provide for them physically with food and with clothing and with shelter. But here, Paul says a Christian father must also nurture his children emotionally and spiritually. Nourish them in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Now these two words, discipline and instruction, are really interesting. We might not expect to see the word discipline here. Actually, especially after Paul has just told dads, don't provoke your children to anger. But do you notice the implication? When Paul writes, don't provoke, he's not saying, don't discipline them. He's certainly not saying, don't make them mad. That would be impossible, right? So then what's going on? Well, there's a certain kind of discipline that leads to discouraging anger. But how do we know the difference? Well, this same word, discipline, is actually used in several places throughout the New Testament. And it's probably used most often in the book of Hebrews. Where there, it's actually translated a couple different ways. The most common way is chastening. Probably another word we don't use often. But chastening or firmness, or we might say today, um, setting boundaries. The author there, in Hebrews, uses the term to describe a certain kind of discipline that God uses with us, his children. But how does God discipline his children? Hebrews 12.10, the author writes, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. In other words, there's a certain kind of discipline whose objective is holiness. God disciplines us so that we might look more like him. In the same way, We are to discipline our children, not simply so that they can do whatever we want, but so that they begin to think and act and talk like Jesus, like God. Now, there's a balance to that discipline, and that is instruction. 
Right? That's what Paul says. Nourish them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, that word instruction refers to teaching, to dialoguing, to persuading, to reasoning with them. Uh, Tim Keller talks about a balance that he sees between disciplining your children and instructing them. Right? On the one hand, you're to lay down the law, to set rules, and to enforce them. But on the other hand, you're to talk with them, to reason with them, to encourage them, to persuade them. And Christian parents are called to do both. Now, if you're honest, you'll admit that you probably lean one way or the other. Some of us tend to lead more toward discipline. And that does exasperate our children. And over time, it would embitter them and discourage them. And so, even this week, as I was preparing this message, I was convicted that I needed to do a better job at instruction, at talking with my kids and explaining to them the reasons why something is right and something is wrong. It's part of what it means to nourish our children, to bring them up, in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. And the section finishes by saying, do all of this in the Lord, or of the Lord, twice that phrase is used. What that means, parents, is that ultimately, you bear the primary responsibility for discipling your kids. You can't outsource it to our amazing Sunday school teachers, and they are amazing. You also can't say, well, the youth pastor has it. Or, you know, uh, the, this other worship leader is going to handle it. Fathers, do not provoke, but nourish them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It means that you're constantly looking for ways to point your children to Jesus. So there you have it. Paul's instructions for family, uh, parent-child relationships. Children, obey your parents, and dads, don't provoke them to anger, but instead disciple them. Easy, right? Of course not. Who doesn't wish that our children would obey us in everything? Kids, do you always take a bath whenever your parents ask you to? Do you always turn off the electronic or the TV or the phone when your parents ask you to? Do you stop screaming at each other or fighting with each other whenever your parents ask you to the first time? And who doesn't wish we did a better job as parents in discipling your children? Kids, this is where you can go like this to your parents, right? Which one of us doesn't wish we did a better job discipling our kids? When was the last time you read a story from the Bible with them? When's the last time you taught them on baptism or communion, the Lord's Supper, and what it means? Or went through the catechism? How are you doing with both discipline and instruction? But why isn't it easy? Because of our sin. Martin Luther calls our sinful nature in curvatus in say that it is turned inward on itself. Our hearts, our sinful hearts, don't look outward. 
don't like looking outward. They don't like serving. They don't like caring. They don't like love. It's turned inward toward ourselves. Children don't like to obey parents. Parents are much too busy to disciple their children. But it all starts, friends, because we don't obey our first father, the creator who made us, who molded and shaped us, who continues to care for us, provide for us, and sustain us even to this day. We continue to rebel to fight back, to disobey, to dishonor, to not worship God. Daily, we refuse instruction. We refuse discipline. So how on earth are we supposed to do this? How can we ask from our children what we don't give to our father? Well, it starts by looking to Jesus. See, in Jesus, we see a son who submits perfectly to his father, obeying him in every way. In John 5.30, he says this, I, Jesus, do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. The son Jesus Christ, whom we call Lord and Savior, wasn't too proud to disregard his father's instruction. He didn't think he knew better. On the contrary, even though he had full authority over heaven and earth, he fully submitted to the father's authority and obeyed him in everything. He trusted in his father's love and care for him. But we also see a father who looks after his son, instructing him in every way for his mission in the world. Listen again, John 8, 28. Jesus says, I do nothing on my own, but I speak exactly what the Father has taught me. And again, John 12, 49. I have not spoken on my own, Jesus says, but the Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. Do you see what's happening there? Jesus knew what to do while he was on earth because his father had taught him. The father wasn't too busy for the son. The father wasn't in a hurry. The father taught his son what to say and how to say it. And so perfect was the son's love for the father that he was willing to submit and obey him in everything, even up to the point of death. To obey what none of us have been asked to do from our parents. To die on a cross like a criminal for people who don't deserve it, you and me. But because he was willing to obey and honor his father, Philippians says that God exalted him above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In Jesus, the promised long life of the fifth commandment was given because of his obedience to the father. So you ask, where are we supposed to look? How are we supposed to get the power? How are we supposed to do this? How can we obey? How can we disciple and not provoke our children to anger? This is where you get the power. 
by looking at Jesus, by remembering what Jesus has done, what the Father, the divine Godhead has done. It all starts here. Notice that Paul doesn't ground his command on obedience uh, on patriarchal culture. He grounds it on the principle of love for Jesus that results in mutual submission. This whole section started back in chapter 5 where Paul writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do it because of Jesus. He is the center. If and when we fail to live like this, could it be that we've forgotten what Jesus has done for us? But change is possible. We don't have to continue living this way. Transformation is real. And you are invited to join in. See, when we follow Paul's instructions, we're imitating the relationship that God the Father and God the Son have been engaging in since before eternity. Do you hear what I'm saying? As children obey their parents, and as parents instruct, discipline, and nourish their children, there is something powerful and unique that happens because we are reflecting something that the divine Godhead has been doing for millions upon billions upon trillions of years. And we're not only participating in this divine dance, we're invited to extend it out into the world so that as we obey our parents and disciple our children, we're showing something of what God is like. As we disciple our children, as we instruct them and nourish them, we're showing the world what God the Father is like. As he, dis- as he instructs and teaches the Son. As we obey our parents, we're showing others the son's heart and wanting to submit himself to instruction so that even through the simple exercise of, of obedience and discipleship, those outside of the community of faith are seeing something of the gospel being played out through our familial relationships. How I train and disciple my own children and how I obey and honor my parents sends a message of what God is like. Now let me kind of finish by talking to the guys here for a second. Since I do think Paul is intentional in addressing dads. Listen, I get it. Um, I know how busy you are. I get the weight that many of you carry and looking out for your family's financial and physical well-being. Many of you are highly successful. Others of you are trying to get there so that you can feel good about yourself, so that you can feel like you built something, so that your family is taken care of as they get older and you reach retirement. I get that. So much of that is really good and right and holy. But let me ask you this. Are you putting in as much time into the discipline, the training, and the instruction of your children as you are into your business? 
And it's not apples to apples here, right? I'm not saying you work 12 hours at work, so, you know, 12 hours instructing, discipling your kids. Don't miss the point. You get what I'm saying. Are you putting in as much mental effort into discipling your children every night as you are planning for retirement? Looking at the spreadsheets. Are you leading your boys and your girls into worship? Studying the Bible? Prayer? With as much energy as you lead your company? And if not, why not? Maybe there's an obvious reason. You just don't have kids. So this doesn't really apply to you. Well, the great thing is that throughout Scripture, raising children is not a solo endeavor. I'm not supposed to raise Leah and Timothy into following Jesus by myself. I bear primary responsibility, but it's not just me. It really does take a village. I need you. They need you. Or maybe you just don't know how to or where to start. So ask others around you. Join a men's Bible study. Begin to listen to how other men are doing it or how they're trying to do it. Learn from the older guy's failures, but also their successes. Maybe you feel like you just don't have the time, right? It's just a season of life. This is not a good moment. So what needs to change in your work, in your schedule, so that you're not giving your children leftovers when you get home from work? Maybe they're older, you feel like it might be too late or that they're just not interested. Well, let me tell you this, there is always time. There is always hope. We just witnessed the baptismal waters where we are reminded that God not only makes us promises, but promises to look after our kids and our kids' kids up to a thousand generations. That's what he says. That's the kind of God that he is. God has made your family promises that he will care for your children. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Well, then you can try. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our source of strength. When we're weak, you are strong, and you lift us up when we're down. You renew our strength, and we soar on wings like eagles. Thank you, God, for always raising us up with your mighty hands. How strong our bonds are with our families depends on you, Lord, which is why we ask you to always be the center of our family relationships. Enable our families to be as triple-braided cords that cannot easily be broken. Let your spirit fill our hearts so that we can love each other just as Christ loved us. And in our times of trials and troubles, God, we look to you. Life can hand us so many different challenges that we know we cannot face on our own. But with you, Father, we believe that nothing is impossible. We believe that you always grant us the endurance to overcome any obstacle that may come our way. You are our strength and we are weak, God, and we are always grateful for when you manifest your power through our lives. All of this we pray in your name. Amen.